Support for OPB comes from our members and from our sponsors, like Tracy Ray from the employment law firm of Baron Lehman. Tracy says that OPB sponsorship is a great way to support the community and connect with Baron Liebman's clients. From the Gerd Boyle studio at OPB, this is Think Out Loud. I'm Dave Miller. Menstrual products like tampons typically have an absorbency level listed on the side of their packaging. But until recently, that wasn't determined with actual blood. Saline, which is a simpler and less viscous fluid, has been the default since absorbency standards were first set in the 1980s. Researchers at OHSU set out to change that. They tested tampons and pads and cups and period underwear with real human blood in an effort to better diagnose heavy menstrual bleeding. Bethany Samuelson-Bano is an associate professor of medicine at OHSU and a co-author of this new study, and she joins us now. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Why did you come up with this idea to study the absorbency of tampons and other products using actual blood? Well, it started in our clinics. We see a lot of folks with heavy periods in our clinics, and we were starting to notice more and more of them using menstrual cups instead of the pads and tampons that we normally use uh, when we're assessing heavy menstrual bleeding. So to diagnose it in our clinic, the questions we ask are, how often do you change your pad or tampon? But we didn't have a metric for when people were using cups. So we said, okay, let's look into this. Let's look into cups and period underwear and see how much they absorb so we can better use those tools uh, in our diagnosis of heavy menstrual bleeding. And we wanted to be consistent with what had been done with other products in the past And so we did a little bit of a dive into the literature to find out how tampons and pads had originally been assessed. Uh, And what we found out was, in general, there's actually not really any regulation for the absorbency of pads. Um, Tampons are more highly regulated because of toxic shock syndrome back in the 80s something called the tampon task force was formed. Uh, And that's where, as you mentioned, the saline standard was created. Uh, And so we thought to ourselves, well, you know, that made sense for what they were doing uh, in terms of just trying to stratify tampons by absorbency. But that doesn't really make sense for what we're doing in our clinic, which is trying to uh, estimate how much blood loss a patient is having during periods. So we decided just to start from scratch and do it all with blood uh, to give us some more accurate data. What are the repercussions of that that decision from 40 years ago now? I mean, I guess the question is, how is menstrual blood different from saline in terms of um, its likelihood of being absorbed? Yeah, well, it differs actually both ways. So we found that tampons absorbed Uh, more at least red blood cells uh, than would have been anticipated on the side of the package. Uh, And then we found with uh, menstrual underwear that it seemed to absorb less. So either way, it's going to be a little bit inaccurate. Of course, menstrual blood itself is also different from red blood cells to be, you know, fully uh, open. We weren't able to use menstrual blood because you can't collect it in that quantity. Um, But 
I don't know that it necessarily has affected the consumer on a day-to-day basis because I don't think people go to the store and look for a pad or tampon saying, oh, I think I'm going to lose, you know, 30 milliliters of blood. I'll pick that product. Um, but where it does affect things is when we don't have the knowledge of how things are, are changing. The landscape of absorbance is changing on the medical side and when we're taking our histories. And I worry that maybe we have missed some diagnoses of heavy menstrual bleeding because folks are using these products that absorb so much uh, hmm. and we're underestimating their loss. I mean, that does get to the question of of how diagnosis of heavy menstrual bleeding works right now. I mean, a, as a clinician, what kinds of questions do you ask and, and, and how good a picture can you get of blood loss on any given day or cycle? Yeah. So there are there are, I will say, formal tools that can be used. There's something called a pictorial blood loss assessment chart where uh, folks document how many pads or tampons they use and how saturated they are. And that seems to be accurate. Those have been done with diluted blood in the past. But it's a form that has to be filled out over the course of the cycle. And of course, you know, when a patient comes to you on the first day, they're not bringing that with them. And so we ask specific questions. So I like to ask how many days of bleeding is somebody having per cycle? So uh, anything more than seven is is abnormal. Uh, Certainly bleeding between periods is abnormal. And of course, I ask that how many pads or tampons do you use or how often do you change them? And historically, we've fallen back on um, the idea of changing more often than every two hours uh, is too frequent. But with some of these products, you know, our, our cutoff is actually 80 milliliters per cycle. Um, with a disc, they could contain very close to that in, in one change. Uh, you know, a tampon that absorbs 30 milliliters, you can get over 80 in three. Uh, and so that, I think, has been the, the metric that's going to be most affected by this. Uh, importantly, we also ask about how quality of life is affected. And that is the standard currently. So heavy menstrual bleeding that affects uh, personal, uh, social, emotional, physical quality of life. Uh, that's what matters in terms of deciding what to treat. I'm a hematologist, so I have a, a very specific interest in, in trying to assess the blood loss in terms of, you know, is this something that could be a sign of an underlying bleeding disorder? Uh, but those are the questions that we focus the most on currently. Why in the end, does it matter how much blood we're talking about from a clinical perspective? If if the the really key questions are, does somebody have enough red blood cells? Are they, are they anemic? Is there an iron deficiency? If I mean, if there's if there's a clinical response to it, and everybody's body is different, how important is it to know just how much blood is being lost? No. I don't know that the, knowing the exact amount is hugely critical, but knowing that before or uh, less than or more than 80 milliliters is helpful because folks who have more blood loss than that are going to be at risk for things you mentioned, iron deficiency and anemia. Those are very common in my clinic. Uh, it often impacts quality of life at that level. 
Uh, and it could also, in some senses, be indicative of something else going on. So, for example, uh, fibroids can cause heavy menstrual bleeding. Bleeding disorders are associated with heavy menstrual bleeding, which is certainly not to say that everybody who has heavy menstrual bleeding will have an underlying issue. That's uh, the opposite is actually true. Uh, but it is important for us to know that so we're not missing something else. I should remind folks, if you're just tuning in, we're talking right now with Bethany Samuelson-Bano. She's an associate professor of medicine at OHSU who treats and researches blood disorders like bleeding and clotting. She recently tested the absorbency of menstrual products using human blood, which had not really been done before. Why not? I'm, I'm really curious about that fateful decision back in the 80s. I mean, why did manufacturers use saline instead of blood? That's a great question. And I think here it's really important to acknowledge that um, unlike other metrics for diagnosing, like blood pressure or thyroid hormone levels, we're not in control of the metric we're using to diagnose. I don't um, you know, I can't just send somebody to the lab to find out if they have heavy menstrual bleeding or not. We're really dependent upon products that are created by manufacturers who have a goal that's very different from ours diagnosing heavy menstrual bleeding. You know, their goal is to make products that make getting through the day with a period more practical, uh, which sometimes means absorbing a lot of blood. Uh, and when they created the tampon task force, really what they needed to do was just to standardize. So every tampon manufacturer uh, called their products the same thing in terms of light or super or things like that. And so using saline made sense for that. It made sense to help consumers know in general level of absorbency they need and make sure that they're using the minimum absorbency necessary uh, because that will help reduce the risk of toxic shock. Uh, and then we in medicine have kind of co-opted this to help us diagnose heavy menstrual bleeding, again, because there's not an easy lab uh, or you know medical test that we can offer for it. Uh, and so that disconnect is, is really the source, I think, of a lot of challenges in the diagnosis of heavy menstrual bleeding. And it seems like that that disconnect is part of, of what you're hoping to, to correct now. How do you hope that, that your new findings will help healthcare providers who are trying to diagnose heavy menstrual bleeding or, or other conditions? What, what might be possible now that hasn't been possible in the past? Yeah, I think we are going to be more aware of folks with heavy menstrual bleeding and miss fewer diagnoses. So if somebody comes into my clinic now and they say, oh, they only change their tampon four times a day, but it's a super or an ultra, uh, then that's very different than if they just changed a regular tampon uh, or pad. And so I think having this knowledge is going to help Clinicians take more informed histories uh, and make a more informed diagnosis and hopefully capture more episodes of heavy menstrual bleeding that we wouldn't have in the past. How much hope do you have that, that research like this um, could break down the societal stigmas around even simply talking about menstruation that still exists. I, I feel like there has been a change over the last decade 
Um, but but it, it's it's not it's not like people talk about menstruation the way they talk about other absolutely standard regular things that happen to human bodies. There there, there is still a difference that, that I hear. Yes, you are absolutely right. Um, and there's even some quote out there about uh, if you do a search, even in the medical literature uh, for menstrual bleeding compared to, for example, erectile dysfunction, there's a huge difference there. The thing that gives me the most hope uh, is how much buzz this study has generated. I don't think that we thought that this was going to be you know, a big deal that led to a lot of change. I think we thought this is an important thing. We need to do it. Um, and we're going to write it up and hopefully people will access it. But the amount of conversation that I've seen um, in the media, in social media, <clears throat> in medical circles, uh, it's really inspiring. And it, it really does give me a lot of hope. Uh, I see lots of patients who come into my clinic and they think their periods are normal. Um, but they're very abnormal and they don't know that because they're not talking about it with friends uh, or their doctors. Um, yeah, that's the worst thing of all when people aren't even comfortable talking to their doctors about it. So I see this as such a positive move towards really reducing that stigma uh, and getting uh, more awareness and more comfort uh, talking about menstruation. We asked listeners on Facebook how having menstruation affects them. Rebecca Pelly Marie wrote, it takes me out of the game for a minimum of one to two days every month. It's been like this for me for at least 36 years with no end in sight. I'm anemic and I'm getting older and I don't bounce back from it the way I could when I was younger. It creates havoc and makes me miserable. We just have a minute left, but but what are the stakes here? I think the stakes are huge. I mean, this is not the first time I've heard somebody missing work or school or something on a regular basis. And quality of life is really what it comes down to. So I think the stakes are very high for half the population. Bethany Samuelson-Bano, thanks very much. Thank you. Bethany Samuelson-Bano is an associate professor of medicine at OHSU, a member of the team that put out this new report that for the first time looked into the absorbency of tampons and other menstruation products using not saline, but actual human blood.